Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. folks welcome to this episode of history is gay i am lee your intrepid host as always and today's episode uh is gonna be a bit of a wild ride because a lot of shit is happening in this country and we decided that we really needed to talk about it so i'm bringing back veteran guest host friend of the pod, Aubrey Calvin, for this episode to chat with me. Hi, Aubrey. How are you doing? I'm good. Veteran co-host. I like yeah. that. Wow. Yeah, what, we've done like- I've never been a veteran what, like anything. five episodes now? <laughs> I think this is our fifth. <laughs> yeah. Tech, I think it's our fifth one. It's good to be back. I am good. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, uh, aside from multiple states in the country continually trying to uh, criminalize my existence. So- um, Yeah, and it feels like my governor's the leader of the pack, which is scary. Texas, yeah. get your act together. <laughs> right, yeah. As bad as things are- sitting here from sunny california watching things like i can't imagine what it's like to be uh in texas right now which is where you are so yeah uh buckle up folks this episode is going to be uh mostly us yelling and like foaming at the mouth because we're right back in this bullshit again this episode we're going to be going back to the late 1970s in the united states and the emergence of right-wing Christian anti-gay movements and this kind of like family values language that was specifically a reaction to the passage of some of the first local gay rights ordinances, specifically a rash of anti-gay legislation attempts that began with former beauty queen and Florida Orange Juice spokeswoman Anita Bryant and her Save Our Children campaign in Dade County, Florida, which in turn then inspired legislation across the country, most notably Proposition 6 in California, which would have banned gay and lesbian and allied teachers. We decided that this was the right time to talk about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. This new wave of events, despite being terrifying attempts to continually criminalize the queer community, um, in some ways they've galvanized and changed strategies and tactics of the queer rights organizations and catapulted the topic of LGBTQ rights onto a national level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're at the end of March, beginning of April 2022 right now, and there so far in 2022 has been, I think, over 240 bills that have been proposed mm -hmm that have been anti-LGBTQ legislation. And the most prominent things that we're seeing right now are the bills in Texas that uh, criminalize parents' attempts to receive trans-affirming medical care for their trans kids and would force people in schools, and etc. to, like, report trans kids to their parents, uh, as well as the Parental Rights in Education Act, also known as the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, which would ban discussing of any sexual orientation or gender identity or anything in schools. So... We were hearing this and going, well, this all rings really fucking familiar. And so Aubrey and I decided that it was time to to 
dive into this and we figured one of the best ways to do this would be kind of doing a crossover episode. So this first episode is going to be the first part of our two crossover episodes with Southern Queries. Here on History is Gay, we're going into the history of all of these uh, events in the 1970s and the emergence of these anti-gay movements and the ways that they shifted both organizing tactics in queer organizations and the national conversation on gay rights. Yeah, and then on Southern Queries, India, Lee, and I are going to talk about the contemporary connection, how current anti-queer and anti-trans legislation, um, as well as like the whole opposition and critical race theory, which is not being taught in schools in the first place. A lot of it's just using the same tired arguments from 45 years ago, now in 2022. So to really get a, a contemporary look on this, listen to my show. And to get this historical one, you're listening to Lee's show. Yeah. So you, you know, may have seen either episode in each other's feeds. We highly recommend you listen to these kind of as a unit. In terms of content warnings for this episode. It's going to be a pretty heavy one. I'm not going to lie. This is going to be one where we're going to try to put trigger warnings and content warnings with our, our time codes throughout, but just be forewarned and a heads up that there's going to be some really difficult language throughout this entire episode. It's going to have a lot of derogatory language related to the LGBTQ community that uh, is, you know, might be really difficult to hear. It discusses historical lies around queer people and pedophilia and child molestation. So just a heads up on that. Uh, to kind of wrap things up in our intro here, a couple of actually fun things before we dive into like the shit storm that we're, we're going to talk about. Um, we have a cool new Tea Public storefront. Um, so all of the wonderful designs that you love from our store, you can now get on a whole bunch of different things like mugs and laptop cases and phone cases. And I don't know if you wanted like pillows and a notebook that said, you know, land gay or whatever, you can get that now. So you can head over just to the same link and it will take you to a Tea Public store. And we've actually uh, introduced a brand new design by our friend Asher Silverman, who designed our Geographic Queers designs and also guest hosted on the King Christina of Sweden episode. We have come up with a design that says, I declare independence from gender attributed to the public universal friend who we did in our seventh episode and all of the proceeds for that design, anything you buy it on in any of the variations, we've got a whole bunch of different pride flag colors. All of the proceeds are going to Trans Education Network of Texas and Equality Florida to fight these things that are happening right now. All of those proceeds will go to them uh, through the end of April. So go check that out, support these causes, and get some really cool designs. I know that I bought like three of the shirts because I just really love it. Um, It's really cool. Yeah, I so, got the notebooks. I'm addicted to notebooks, even though I have so many already. I'm so excited about the notebooks. I love notebooks. Oh my gosh. And I have a problem. It's I mean, Hey, if you use them, there you go. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm really excited about those, and more things are coming your way. So, uh, we've got a lot of stuff to dive into, so let's go into it, yeah? Shall yeah. we? Yeah, I think the first thing, if we're going to talk about the 1970s, is we probably need to provide some historical context and kind of set the mood, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, what we're looking at is the time that follows the Stonewall Riots in 1969, as well as the first Pride Parade in 1970. So 
the 70s were a decade of a lot of political, social, cultural change in the United States. And so we're looking at how the queer activists worked with or against politicians to change local and state rules. And I think that's important because a lot of times we talk about the national laws and national policies, but a lot of things that affect you are at the local or state level. Mm -hmm. So by the mid-1970s, the LGBTQ rights movement had made some modest achievements in terms of legal recognition and anti-discrimination, mostly thanks to multiple local and national queer organizations popping up, as well as the expansion of the gay press. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have this uh, article that we read from Jillian Frank that's really wonderful. And she has this quote in there about how because of these you know, organizations and because of this expansion of the gay press, she says that gays were increasingly able at this time to define themselves as part of a national community with shared social and political interests. You know, for the first time really seeing ourselves as like a unit. Yeah. And one thing we liked about when researching the gay press is that frequently what would happen in one local area would become news and talked about in another area. So when we look at Florida, a lot of the coverage was from a Philadelphia newspaper. And so it's just a lot of this, you would think because it's local newspapers, it would all be separate, but they were all reporting on what each other was doing. Mm -hmm. So that was just really cool. But that was just really cool. We also see a shift from a more radical resistance idea to more a mainstream political focus. By 1975, 37% states and counties had expanded their civil rights laws on the books to include sexual orientation to their list of non-discrimination statuses, specifically targeting employment and housing. And just so to offer one example, in 1973, uh, the Seattle City Council revised their employment ordinances to prohibit job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And then I, one I liked that I didn't expect to find was in 1975, The Minneapolis, Minnesota City Council became the first one to include trans people in their non-discrimination ordinances. Yeah. Also, by 1975, the U.S. Civil Service Commission had repealed the ban on queer people's employment in the federal civil service, which is pretty significant when you consider that the Lavender Scare was, you know, happening not too soon before that, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Um, Multiple states had reformed or eliminated their sodomy laws on the books. And while public opinion was still hostile to queerness, there were a whole bunch of LGBTQ coalitions that were making big waves throughout the country. You had visible pride parades, you had more and more of these gay presses, and there was, you know, this widespread use of the slogan that we've talked about before, gay is good, which was inspired specifically by black is beautiful. Um, So you're starting to see, you know, some sentiments come bubbling forward. But these efforts towards progress were made, you know, more difficult by a religious and cultural backlash from conservative Christians who saw their mostly Protestant, you know, mostly white control on defining appropriate values and morals kind of slipping away from their grasp, um, much in the way that we see people flailing right now because suddenly not in charge of everything. Yeah, and I just, we don't want to dive too deeply into the complete history of the political movement that is the evangelical right. Yeah. Uh, but kind of, because that's a whole nother thing, but just looking at the 1970s, uh, kind of going back to that Jillian Frank article, she notes in her article, the civil rights of parents, race and conservative politics in Anita Bryant's campaign against gay rights in 1970s Florida. Uh, conservative opposition to gay rights had evolved 
right alongside its opposition to African-American civil rights, with language used such as the civil rights of parents to save their children from homosexual influence. And if you notice, it utilized a lot of the same emphasis on child protection that we saw in the anti-busing movements. And that was one of the big arguments against busing was people would say, I'm not racist, I believe in integration, but I want to protect my child from this allegedly, you know, what have you. Uh, So you saw white-controlled governments around the country were resisting integration which, you know, led to court-ordered school desegregation and busing policies. Uh, The more the city councils pushed back, the more the courts had to get involved. And parents, especially white conservative evangelical parents, especially here in the South, but also all over the country, uh, they were seeing their schools kind of change. And it looked a lot different from when they were kids, and they felt they were losing power and authority in all aspects of their children's lives. And so instead of moms and dads making the decisions, it was the government. And as expected, we see religious fundamentalist parents push back against this. Yeah, you even see uh, in March 1970, President Nixon gave a speech deriding the the court-ordered busing. Uh, He said that it caused, quote, anger, fear, and turmoil in local communities, and worst of all, agonized concern among hundreds of thousands of parents for the education and safety of their children who had been forced by court order to be bussed miles away from their neighborhood schools. So conservatives were attempting to, you know, flip the civil rights conversation by doing it through, like, the veil of parental civil rights. Like Aubrey was saying, you know, I'm not racist, I just care about the education of my children. Just the you same know? argument they used to promote segregation. Right. I'm it's, not racist, the, the racists just are better apart. Yeah, it's just, it's the same, it's the same thing. Um, you know, fundamentalists felt that government needed to support the views of religious parents to the detriment of minority students. You know, we're assuming that these same parental civil rights, probably not a tool that black, indigenous, and other families of color had, because, you know, that's how it goes, I guess. (laughs) Absolutely. (sighs) Um, So, Anita Bryant's Save Our Children campaign really did have direct ties to the anti-busing movement. A lot of the key figures in the organization of the SOC campaign were directly involved in anti-busing fights in Florida and around the country. Yeah, uh, and then the last little piece of kind of context we wanted to give to this is at this same time, uh, much like we see in the satanic panic of, I think it was like late 80s, the mid-1970s saw an explosion of uh, media sensationalism and panic about this so thought of uh, epidemic of big trigger warnings here of child pornography. And anti-gay activists latched onto this, insisting that the problem was intimately connected to the, you know, the dangers of gay men around children. Between the spring and summer of 1977, a whole bunch of different news outlets ran stories. Um, 60 Minutes, Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, all of these ran story after story about child pornography. Yeah, and a lot of this was spurred on by one social worker who ran a New York City drug addiction treatment center uh, named uh, Judy Ann Denson Gerber. And she claimed that child pornography was a national epidemic and did multiple press conferences and presentations where she would display actual child pornography to grab the attention and the politicians, which is, you know, fucking gross. Yeah, she, you know, basically was like, 
you know, this is the greatest threat to our children and it's happening everywhere. And, you know, all the hungry journalists ran to it and a whole bunch of politicians started enacting, you know, putting all these things, putting all these bills on ballots to, you know, fight the scourge of child pornography. And I just, I'm just seeing such intense parallels between this uh, specifically the way that, like, this idea that child pornography was running rampant and that it was specifically tied to, like, gay people, um, you know, like, news outlets would specifically report on homosexual molesters, but, you know, of course, if it's, like, a straight dude, they're not gonna say heterosexual molesters. Um, I'm just seeing intense parallels between this and, like, the way that right now, like, QAnon has launched onto this idea of child sex cabals and shit happening with, like, high-level politicians and important people in the liberal media, um, and the way that that's just being used (laughs) as, like, racist dog whistles instead of actually fighting actual abuse and trafficking that's happening from the very people that they're supporting. You know, if you really want to fight, like, you know, trafficking and child sex abuse, maybe you should look at, oh, I don't know, Trump. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I have to say on that. Yeah, the parallels are outrageously similar. Yeah. So that's that's our that's our historical context. So let's get into uh, we're going to kind of have two pronged approach for each of these. We're going to start off talking about Miami, Dade County, Florida, and how all this started and then where it kind of went uh, spreading out everywhere. And in and in both of these, we're also going to talk about how the LGBTQ rights movement mobilized and reacted against it. So let's start in Florida. All right. So who is Anita Bryant and what does she have to do with LGBTQ rights? Well, Bryant is a former pop country singer and devout Christian. Uh, She was born in 1940 in Oklahoma, which as an Oklahoman, I am sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) uh, In 1958, she was crowned Miss Oklahoma and she was the second runner up in 1959's Miss America contest. She's not even a Miss America winner. She's a Miss. She's a failed Miss America. Third place, you know. Third place. Yeah, she's a failed contestant. (laughs) Yeah, she she turned these appearances into a singing and variety show career in the sixties. Uh, she had a bunch of singles. Her highest charting one was 1961's Paper Roses. And she had a string of minor hits in the early 60s, but she never really reached like a superstar status in comparison to other pop singers of the day. By the late, you know, 60s to 70s, she had transitioned mostly to just, you know, kind of playing to her base. She, she did a lot of like Christian praise songs. In 1960, she married her husband, Bob Green, and moved to Florida and became Florida's problem. Uh... <laughs> And she, uh, in 1969, was tapped by the Florida Citrus Commission to be their spokeswoman. She would appear in radio and television commercials all over until 1980. Yeah, I mean, Anita Bryant, she really was tied a lot to uh, Reverend Billy Graham. And a lot of that kind of rise of that more more like gospel, TV, radio, more theatrical aspect of Christianity. In 1977, Florida conservative political leaders, really including mainly Anita Bryant and her husband, they founded the anti-LGBT organization Save Our Children. And Anita was basically the spokeswoman and the public face of the campaign. And we're going to dive into them more a little bit. And just a quick note on terminology. uh, When we say Miami-Dade County, that's the same thing really as Dade County, which is what it was called. They changed it to Miami-Dade County in 1997. So you might hear a switching between Dade County and Miami-Dade County, but it's the same place and location. Same. It's just, yeah. you know, it's not Disney Laurel. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, so in uh, 1976, a group of South Florida gays and lesbians formed the Dade County Coalition for the Humanistic Rights, or DCCHR. Their goal was to advance local protections of their community through political alliances with other organizations and politicians who were sympathetic or supportive. And one of their main priorities was getting the county to include sexual orientation or, you know, what it was called in 1970s, uh, sexual preference, into its non-discrimination policy, much like other municipalities around the country were doing. They wanted equal treatments and civil rights protections in housing, public education, education, and municipal and government employment. So they worked with the newly elected Dade County Commissioner, Ruth Shack, and on December 7th, 1976, Shack introduced the non-discrimination ordinance, and the commission voted unanimously to put the bill to a final vote at the January 18th meeting, which was the following month. Uh, yeah. So for Ruth Shack, and this was like her first year in office, uh, the Human Rights Amendment was just the right thing to do. Uh, and in one interview, she said, I thought it was a very ethical and very Jewish thing to fight against discrimination. I didn't think it was a big deal, but I was condemned by priests and rabbis and I got death threats. People forget that back in 1977, gay people could be fired, could be jailed, could be sent out of their homes and of their theaters, out of theaters. To see my friends going to jail just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time was horrific. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what an ally looks and sounds yeah. like. I mean, yep. Yep. Uh, she's just amazing. And so in that January 1977 commissioner's meeting, it was pretty contentious. There was a lot of, uh, you know, public outcry. There's a lot of yelling by the public against this amendment. And some of the commenters were religious leaders that were local and that bust in, as well as anti-equal rights amendment activists, because that was still going on around this time. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, Anita Bryant. Uh, there were just literally hundreds of protesters with signs and picket uh, picket signs and protesting inside and outside of the building. Yeah, it was uh, one of the largest responses, you know, oppositional responses to these things. And that's one of the things that made this particular action so significant. Many in the crowd had Bibles or signs with like specifically religious messages like, God says no, who are you to say different? And don't legislate immorality for Dade County. Uh, it ridiculous. Um, each side during this meeting, uh, either for or against the proposal, was given 45 minutes to speak, and the Bible was used to justify both positions. Uh, a real choice asshole that we're going to hear from multiple times, <laughs> Robert Brake, who was one of the chief people opposed to the ordinance, said, trigger warnings for all these fun quotes, homosexuals are perfectly free to go into their closets, in their bedrooms, in their privacy, and take care of themselves there. So basically, 1977 version of, I don't mind gay people as long as they don't shove it down my throat. Despite the anger of the crowd, though, the county commission voted in favor of the ordinance, 5-3. to three. So the DCCHR and Ruth Shack had won. Yay! Story's over! Yes! Yay. Let's episode over. Episode Thank you all done. for listening, Thanks. and we're out. Yeah. No, of course not. I mean, when is life ever that simple? Right. Uh, yeah. Really, there was a huge fallout after the ordinance passed. After the vote, Anita Bryant said, we are not going to take this sitting down. The ordinance condones immorality and discriminates against my children's right to grow up in a healthy, decent community. Mm, gotta love that. Ugh. So, save our children, parentheses, from homosexuality... Incorporated. Incorporated. 
is formed just a few days later following this meeting on January 26, 1977, by Florida conservative ministers, politicians, and citizens. Uh, Anita Bryant and her husband, Bob Green, are, you know, the main guiding factors here. Um, They had the first meeting in their house, and they strategized specifically a way to repeal the ordinance. Bryant was named the president and the spokeswoman of the organization, although many scholars have stated that most of the actual political planning was coordinated by other leaders and members who had close ties to the state legislature and other like larger groups like Stop ERA and the Eagle Forum, and a lot of those folks who we mentioned had previously specifically worked in anti-busing movements. Yeah. So under Dade County law, if a minimum of 10,000 signatures were collected in opposition to an ordinance In less than 30 days, the Metro County Commission would either have to A, reverse the ordinance, or call a referendum. So uh, the SOC uh, gathered 60,000 signatures almost in about 25 days, which was six times as many as the minimum required. And they formally presented their petition to the commission on February 22nd, 1977. And the the really amazing and significant thing about this is that Ruth Shack and the Metro County Commission, you know, being presented with these 60,000 signatures, voted to uphold the ordinance anyway. They were like, fuck you. Uh, In March 1977, they decided, you know, to do this, um, even though they had this huge opposition and also like the media was pressuring them. But what that meant is that then, because they didn't uh, reverse the ordinance, it was forced back on the ballot and put to referendum on June 7th, 1977. In a May 77 press conference, uh, which, yeah, Ruth Shack, like, didn't just stop at this, you know, first vote. She just kept, she kept gunning for it, which is great. She read this 300-word statement urging voters not to repeal. And in it, she has this wonderful quote that says, human rights are not gifts to be distributed to those who meet our approval and withheld from those with whom we disagree. Yeah, I think, you know, and I find it interesting is that both these women are still alive. So it's like, I'm just, I'm in love with this idea, you know, and Ruth Shack is just considered like an icon in Florida human rights activism. Uh, So Over the next several months, uh, the Save Our Children engaged in a widespread hate and fear-mongering crusade, comparing homosexuals to child molesters, to uh, crashing gatherings of the Metro Commission, and prompting countless think pieces and newspapers, and really catapulting the whole local issue to national attention. Spurred on, of course, by you know, uh, Anita Bryant's celebrity. It's always that idea of tying a celebrity to your cause, get national attention. Yeah. And some of the sentiments and kind of anti-gay language that was going on, um, you know, it's it's hard to hear this, but we really wanted to put these specific quotes in here because this is how you recognize the same kind of language that's being used today. There was a big emphasis, as we said, on parental rights and protecting children as a holdover strategy from Southern segregationist strategy. So our wonderful Robert Brake again, um, this, this vile ordinance violates the rights of parents to bring up their children as they see fit. Or uh, this deluded uh, Save Our Children member, Judy Wilson, this is not a hate campaign. We're motivated because we love our children and our nation and our country. That's is, that's yeah. the same. But that's, okay. that's the same. Th- I love that. Okay. You know. And then Anita Bryant's was, you know, some of the, some of the worst of all, which is, you know, how she becomes this like big figure. Yeah, yeah, she had horrible things to say. I just, some of the things she said, just bullshit. <laughs> it's like, uh, she said, I don't hate homosexuals, 
But as a mother, I must protect my children from their evil influence. Right. That's a good or, one. Oh God. Or uh, homosexuals cannot reproduce, so they must recruit. And to freshen their ranks, they must recruit the youth of America. Oh, I love this one. The ordinance guts the law on the side of the unrighteous. If homosexuals are allowed to change the law in their favor, why not prostitutes, thieves, or murderers? Which, you know, good false equivalency there, right? Right, Just yeah. Like, yeah. Also, like, d- abolition. <laughs> like, d- yeah. like d- d- yeah, no. Sex workers and fucking people who, you know, can't survive in a violent capitalist society should not be going to jail. So... Yeah, let's change the law. Um, in the same I just kind love of, how she says it's. I don't hate people, but all these words are so hateful. I love it. Right, exactly. It's the love that you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. Um, yeah, it's you know. Here's another one. If gays are granted rights, next we'll have to give rights to prostitutes and to people who sleep with Saint Bernards and to nail biters. And to that, I say, like, yes, sex workers deserve rights. What what of it? Also, yeah, like, nail just, biters. I don't. I don't yeah, get that one. I, I don't. Know. I don't. I, I don't know. Like the whole Saint Bernard uh, bestiality thing is the same thing that religious conservatives used when they were against same sex marriage. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What's is that? What's next? That's that will happen next. I'm like, you do know? you? Do, it's this has never crossed my mind. Mm-mm. Do you okay. want to fuck a dog? Is that what's happening? But, is that what you think marriage is? that is? why you're concerned? I, I, that's so, yeah, Ugh, so gross. Yeah. So gross. Yeah. There was also a stated fear that gay and lesbian teachers were pedophiles that would prey on children and teens. So we reach election day. All of these efforts to essentially backpedal and besmirch Dade County's queer population and the progress that they had made was unfortunately successful locally and come election day the gay rights ordinance was repealed by a whopping margin of 69 to 31 percent so you had this huge shift anita bryant celebrated the results by quote dancing a jig at her miami beach home kissed her husband in front of the crowd and said this is what heterosexuals do fellows way to make straight pride the like most (sighs) absolutely unappealing thing ever like this is what heterosexuals do folks excuse me i don't want to see that yeah it's like uh, it's like for someone who is so religiously conservative and so in her religion she seems to be missing all of the verses about pride and being boastful and humility she's just missing all of those and she's almost as if just so spiteful. It's almost it's like, as if, okay. you know, people who use religion as a veil for and a smokescreen for their bigotry are um, just the tiniest bit hypocritical. But Absolutely, right? Yeah, I funny. told y'all that this episode was just going to be us yelling and foaming Yay. at the mouth. So <laughs> it's like, oh, God. It said, uh, we said it right there on the tip. Uh, I'll let you read that last quote because I'm just so upset uh, right now. Yeah. Uh, so she, she later told news reporters that were like gathering outside of her, you know, her house. Uh, that this was just the start. She quotes, all America and all the world will hear what the people have said. And with God's continued help, we will prevail in our fight to repeal similar laws throughout the nation, which attempt to legitimize a lifestyle that is both perverse and dangerous. And, and, and they did. And she did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, Florida was just the beginning. This absolutely spread elsewhere. Uh, so Dave County was a launching pad for organized opposition to queer rights uh, that really spread across the country, inspiring the Christian right in other states to repeal their own 
expanded human rights ordinances, including St. Paul, Minnesota, Wichita, Kansas, and Eugene, Oregon. What we see is within two years, conservative preacher Jerry Falwell, ugh, God, just (laughs) developed a coalition of conservative religious groups named the Moral Majority that influenced the Republican Party to incorporate a social agenda in their national politics. Uh, Homosexuality, being against the Equal Rights Amendment, abortion, and pornography were really among those issues that became most central to the Moral Majority's priorities uh, up until 1989 when it folded. Yeah. And one of the biggest and most significant campaigns to come out of the Dade County vote was the Briggs Initiative in California, which was a statewide proposition that would have banned and fired gay school teachers and any statements of support thereof, like we mentioned up at the top. We're going to go into detail about this shortly, but before we kind of move over to that area, we really wanted to talk about both the local and national LGBTQ reaction and the organizing in response to Save Our Children and the Dade County struggle. Because as fucking terrible as all of this is it in some ways ended up kind of working you know when you're when you're looking at the at the whole forest in our favor um yeah while while it you know was a huge step back these crusades moving across the country galvanized the community into organizing on a national level that hadn't really been seen before and it led to changes in the narrative and organizing tactics uh of queer organizations specifically into, like, opposing these attacks on, like, a very granular level. Yeah, I mean, in some of the analysis, if you're looking at the pre- and post-Anita Bryant uh, LGBTQ movement materials, it really showed a shift in the language and the tone. So it kind of framing gays and lesbians as a threatened minority and using an us-and-them language. And I think, and this is going to sound awful when I say this, but we tend to see that movements actually do better when they have an enemy. Yeah. And she became that enemy, you know. Uh, the documents became very specific when talking about who the opponents are, moving away from vague terms like society, government, employers, and talking specifically about people. Anita Bryant, John Briggs, uh, and the local groups and constituencies that they really represented. Yeah, there's a great uh, article that we'll link to in our sources that really does an actual statistical analysis of all these different pieces of literature and pamphlets that show this shift. And specifically also in like different areas, like specifically like queer people's response to police brutality versus queer people and organizations, uh, social movement organizations response to rights and laws, etc. It's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is also not like us saying, oh, this, you know, this is useful. Uh, this was useful for the, for the queer community now in 2022. This is something that was actually known and, and capitalized on at the time. The National Gay Task Force or NGTF had a memorandum that they sent out to different queer organizations around the country that specifically emphasized the ways in which Anita Bryant and SOC could work in their favor. Because, hey, you know, we've been trying to prove that all this discrimination exists, this is the perfect opportunity. There's this quote from this memorandum that says, NGTF leaders advise that we should exploit the publicity value of Bryant's campaign against gay rights in order to explain the issues involved to the widest possible number of people. Bryant is really the perfect opponent. Her Save Our Children campaign vividly demonstrates just why gay rights laws are needed. 
And then another quote, Ms. Bryant has given us visibility and public exposure in the media to make our case. We're constantly challenged by legislators and others to document discrimination against gays. She's a magnificent example of just that. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is that the sentiments of looking at the LGBTQ discrimination, it really is similar to the civil rights struggles of other civil rights groups. I mean, Mm -hmm. especially looking at black civil rights groups. Uh, So going back to Commissioner Ruth Schack, she said, there is discrimination. Arguments against gay rights are the same as those against bringing blacks into the mainstream of society. And that was back in 1977, she said that. Uh, The Dade County Commission, uh, the Human Rights Organization used the slogan, which minority will be next? And just just that telling us that they're not going to stop with just one group, you know? And they used images and flyers that really kind of juxtaposed racism and homophobia. So you do see a lot of that there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also see a large rejection of more radical politics for more assimilationist strategies by the DCCHR. Mm-hmm. And yeah. going back to that Frank article, the Jillian Frank uh, piece, uh, Frank noticed that the DCCHR, which is a mouth- mouthful to say... <laughs> was yeah. placed in the unprecedented position of waging a political campaign that had to make homosexuality socially legible and palatable to voters. Yeah, they focused specifically in their organizing on education, uh, specifically about identity, civil rights, hoping essentially to create sympathy from straight people uh, with queer people and leaning into the, you know, we're just like you sentiments and assimilation tactics that, you know, we see kind of the dichotomy between respectability politics and assimilation politics versus more radical queer existence. Um, what's going to get us what we need at what time? DCCHR leader Ethan Gato, when he was kind of thinking about the Dade County lost, um, suggested new tactics. He said, we have to start talking to them in terms of we are your brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, your doctors and lawyers. That brings it home. But that means more people must come out, however painful that may be. And the National Gay Task Force started a national education campaign with the theme, We Are Your Children, and sold shirts with this across the country throughout the Advocate magazine. So there's this really, you know, specifically tying into like, we're going to use their language against them. Yeah, and I think, and I like that that's the same language that was used to get more people to support same-sex marriage and LGBTQ Mm -hmm. rights now. It's like, we are a part of your family, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't think we want to give the impression that the gay rights movement was completely unified. There was a definite division within the movement, you know, before Bryant and Dade County, interest groups focused more on the idea of respectability politics, wearing suits and ties, dressing professionally, working quietly behind the scenes to secure those non-discrimination ordinances that had passed. And during the Florida Save Our Children campaign and after, organizations really became divided between those that wanted to maintain the assimilation strategy and those that wanted to pursue a more radical and liberation-focused course of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that big split. Uh, so as a result of all of this, you know, you really see a lot of direct protesting of Anita Bryant herself. She really became in the queer community synonymous. Her name was synonymous with bigotry and homophobia. And, you know, it kind of elevated her to the status of uh, the empress of the bigots, if you will, as one protest sign that I really fucking love uh, from the 1978 San Francisco Pride referred to her as. 
People picketed and protested events that she was supposed to attend, including the Miss National Teenager Pageant in 1977, where she was uh, named the, the, the greatest American or something like that, which is bullshit. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention in Atlanta in 1978, the National Religious Broadcasters Association Convention in 1978, and what I really loved is the State Bar of Texas's annual convention in 1977, which actually marked the first major political action for the Houston gay community. I think something like 3,000 people gathered and marched, and the first Houston Pride rally happened a year later. Yeah, I've actually, uh, you know, it's always hard to get these estimates. I've heard that it's closer to 10,000 people, but... Honestly, who can know? Like, <laughs> like honestly, who a, a know? shit ton of people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think this idea of protesting is very interesting because if you go back to just 10 years earlier in 1968, Anita Bryant actually performed at both the Democratic and Republican mm-hmm. National Convention. So to see such a turn in 10 years where she goes from being loved by all political sides to being reviled and protested everywhere she went was just so amazing. Yeah, uh, she even had a, a television series that was proposed um, that she was going to be a part of, uh, like a variety show, and it ended up being canceled because of her campaign. The producers didn't, they just did not want to invite all of that drama. Um, the the main sponsor, Singer uh, Sewing Machines, pulled out, and the producers, uh, you know, said things like, we want this to be a pleasant show. We'd like to have as little difficulty as possible in any direction. Which, of course, that didn't stop Anita Bryant from blaming queers for her lost opportunity, rather than, like, the fact that, you know, she just stepped in her own shit and couldn't keep her mouth shut. Um, you know, she said, uh, famously, the blacklisting of Anita Bryant has begun. Yeah, I mean, I think we see this a lot when we look at people talk about free speech and being able to say whatever they want, but Cancel not really wanting, but not wanting the consequences of it, right? You know, right. And just as we say this, you know, uh, the day we're recording this, uh, Louis C.K. won a Grammy mm-hmm. for a comedy album. Like, really? What I saw a t- I saw a tweet I saw a tweet of that yeah. that just goes cancel culture strikes again. Yeah, and it's like, like <laughs> he won a freaking <laughs> Grammy. Christ. Like, really? Right? Like we we haven't done anything. Yeah. We, <laughs> so there's no console. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to announce that this episode is sponsored by Surfshark VPN. We're so grateful to be able to partner with sponsors like these guys who help keep the show going and enable us to bring you even better content, pay guests, and more. Surfshark VPN, which stands for Virtual Private Network if you're an internet old like me, is an awesome app and browser extension that not only protects your privacy online, but changes your virtual location on your phone or computer to anywhere in the world, allowing you to access the internet as if you were actually in a different country. This, of course, allows you to bypass geo-restrictions and access websites and content that you might not usually be able to see. For example, let's say you just got done listening to our episode on bisexual Mexican artist, communist, and rumored lover of Josephine Baker, Frida Kahlo. And now, understandably, you'd like to stare at the beauty that is Selma Hayek for two hours while she and Alfred Molina portray Kahlo and her husband Diego Rivera in the masterpiece that is Julie Taymor's 2002 biopic Frida, but it isn't available over here on Netflix in the US. However, if you go over to Surfshark and switch your virtual location to Germany, voila. All the Selma Hayek kissing ladies you could ever want. Plus, Surfshark will make your everyday internet surfing way more secure by masking your IP address, keeping you safer from hackers. And it will also encrypt your online data as an added layer of security to keep all your passwords, personal information, and historical not-safe-for-work images you may have saved to your computer for completely educational purposes nice and safe. 
Surfshark is offering an insanely good deal for History is Gay listeners. You can use our special promo code History is Gay, all one word, to get 83% off and three extra months for free. Plus, Surfshark offers a 30-day money-back guarantee so you can try it out completely risk-free. Head on over to surfshark.deals slash history is gay, or you can simply click on the link down in the show notes below for this episode. Check them out, support us, and get back to all the queer internet shenanigans of your dreams safely from anywhere. I think one of the things that tends to be most well known is this idea of boycotting Florida orange juice. As we mentioned earlier, she was the spokeswoman for the Florida Citrus Commission. And as soon as the Save Our Children and Anita Bryan decided they were going to repeal, uh, queer people in Miami and across the nation really began to mobilize a boycott all over the country. Gay bars uh, stopped serving drinks with orange juice just to protest Anita Bryan's involvement in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bars stopped serving screwdrivers and instead replaced them with Anita Bryant cocktails made with vodka and apple juice. And yeah, proceeds of that often went to gay rights activist groups. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. if like they, you know, decided to to continue doing screwdrivers or whatever, like they would replace it with Tang instead of actual <laughs> orange juice. Um, Ugh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm like, oh, God awful. Um, it's a great name. Vodka? It's, it's horrible. It's on <laughs> horrible drinks. Oh yeah. Activism isn't always good. <laughs> uh, so we have this this quote from a, a gay newspaper called Gay Community News from the February twelfth, nineteen seventy seven issue. The one area in which Miami gays continue to take the offensive was the boycott of Florida citrus products designed to focus attention on the role of the Florida Citrus Commission publicist Anita Bryant in the anti-gay campaign. Alan Rockway, spokesman for the Dade County Coalition for the Humanistic Rights of Gays, called the boycott extremely helpful. Bob Kunst, another coalition member, told Gay Community News that, quote, There are fancy restaurants here that have refused to serve orange juice. Texas seems to be going crazy over the boycott. We've had support from all over. Even the only gay bar in Idaho is pushing hard for the boycott. And, you know, this was really significant. This gave people kind of a national outlet to fight, you know, even though they can't, like, be part of the vote in Florida. Um, And also people who were, like, closeted and didn't have any way to, you know, publicly mobilize because they could lose their job and their housing and everything that all of this was fighting for. Um, They could, you know, have their own kind of private little protest by just boycotting orange juice. Yeah, I mean... This idea became so widespread that even a lot of high-profile celebrities started to get involved in endorsing it. Uh, Paul Williams, who wrote, you know, was it the Rainbow Connection song? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vincent Price, which is not surprising. Not surprising. <laughs> uh, Jane Fonda, you know, mm-hmm. not surprising also. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the boycott uh, put the Citrus Commission in a precarious situation. Uh, They had already, like, even before all this, had been considering dropping Anita Bryant from, you know, being spokeswoman just because, like the ads weren't performing as well as they, you know, wanted them to. But once all of this started happening, you know, if they fired her, they could be seen as giving into pressure from queer rights organizations or advocating a pro-gay stance. And also, like, if they if they fired her, you know, all of Anita's supporters would probably threaten a counter boycott. I would sorry, not probably, they did. Um Arthur Darling, who was the director of publicity for the Florida Department of Citrus, uh, was quoted saying in a, I think, 77 article, The whole Anita thing is a mess. No matter what we decide, we're only going to lose. I wish she would just resign. Mm. Uh, so they kept her as spokesperson until 1980. And the kind of, you know, public narrative is that the, the boycott is what did it in. But ultimately, it was her very messy and public divorce from her husband that kind of made her no longer like a conservative values darling. And everybody turned against her and they fired her. But of course, you know, she blames the gays. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think the difficult part is that she was subject. I don't know if it's difficult. I guess it's like the wonderful part is she was subjected to a lot of ridicule. Johnny Carson regularly joked about her in monologues, and there were several anti Anita Bryant sketches on the Carol Burnett show and Saturday Night Live. Gay newspapers advertised items like dartboards and toilet paper with Anita Bryant's face on them. People wow. sold Anita Bryant sucks and fuck Anita Bryant shirts at protests all over the place. Yeah, there were drag shows and Anita Bryant lookalike contests and even uh, discos for democracy that were held to raise money for the fight. And even nowadays still, um, Anita Bryant is a very, very popular caricature in drag performance. Yeah, I mean, all of that is good and hilarious and the sketches on YouTube the, the, the are hilarious about it. But can you tell us about the thing that is the most memorable with the Sunita Bryant thing? I can, with joy in my heart. Uh, perhaps the most memorable response to Anita Bryant, and if anybody, you know, is familiar with Anita Bryant at all, they probably know her because of this. Um, she was one of the first people to be publicly pied as a political act. Um, and it was televised. Uh, so October 14th, 1977, Anita Bryant and her husband were in Des Moines, Iowa for a televised press conference when gay activist from Minnesota, Tom Higgins, Tom L. Higgins, walked up mid-speech and threw a pie straight in her face. It's fucking beautiful. God, yes, it is so great. Um, I mean, Bryant, I will give Bryant credit. She followed it up with what I think is a good line. She said, at least it's a fruit pie. Which, I'm sorry, that works on multiple levels. I don't yeah, want to give her credit, I, I, but it's good. Her, it's like, yeah, it's a good, line. A good one. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't want to give her the credit, but I have to. That's a good one. Um, but then she proceeded to pray to God to forgive Higgins for his deviant lifestyle before breaking down in classic white lady tears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a very, it's a very classic display of like, oh, I'm such a victim. Let me pray for blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a whole thing. Um, it was televised, so we have, uh, uh, there's a beautiful video of it that you can watch over and over and over, um, and we were able to uh, get the audio for it, so let's just listen to this. If we were going to go on a crusade across the nation and try to do away with the homosexuals, uh, then we certainly would have done it on June the 8th after one of the most overwhelming victories in the country. Um, uh, but we didn't. We, we, we tried to avoid it and went into a place called Norfolk, Virginia, and were met with protest and uh, um, all kinds of problems. And uh, uh, every... Oh, oh, oh. Security agents, security agents. No, no, let him stay. No. Let him stay. Well, at least it's a fruit pie. Huh. Let's pray. Let's pray for him right now, Anita. And and honestly, Sappho bless Tom Higgins. I just wanted to highlight him here for a second. Uh, he was an activist from St. Paul, Minnesota, and he worked as a nurse until his death in 1994. And he was actually a prominent gay activist. He was a founding member and officer of several gay organizations, including Free, Fight Repression of Erotic Expression, The Gay Imperative, and The Church of the Chosen People, which was a gay pagan religion established in 1975. I tried to find more about him. Him. It's an obituary that you can read. Um, but yeah, but he died in 1994. Thank you, Tom Higgins. Bless your heart uh, yes, for giving us so all much. this moment. Yeah. I mean, I think the Anita pie to the face moment is just emblematic of the 
kind of creative and fantastical resistance tactics that the LGBTQ community in particular has become well known for. And it's just really been a central tenet of organizing ever since this really first event. Uh, Nowadays, you're likely to see this flavor of protest action in a different or newer form, glitter bombing, which leads us to our word of the week. Uh, to give us a little bit of levity, this episode's word of the week, we wanted to talk about the origin of glitter bombing and more, you know, widely the origin of like glitter being a queer thing. Glitter bombings are essentially the, the spiritual successors to pieing opponents in the face. Social movement scholars call it uh, an act of tactical frivolity. Glitter has been really intrinsically connected to queerness for ages. You know, we all kind of have like this general sense of it, but early drag queens like Laverne Cummings, Barbette, and Jean Lamar were all wearing uh, glitter and specifically like glittery eyeshadow in drag performances as far back as the 1930s. And then we have in the 1970s, 1980s, you have this adoption of taking it to the extreme uh, for glam rock and glitter rock, probably best uh, emphasized by David Bowie and his alter ego of Ziggy Stardust. I mean, I really, it really is a symbol of disobedience and rebellion. And it's even considered by some to be akin to a religious symbol for queer communities. Uh, Laura Dorwart writes, Just as religious symbols like a cross for a star of David signal community and connection, Wearing glitter is a way to signal our queer identities, not only to ourselves, but also to each other. And LGBTQ organizer and Episcopal priest, Reverend Elizabeth M. Edmond, was quoted in an article, Glitter is serious business for queer people. Glitter is how we have long made ourselves visible, even though becoming visible puts us at risk. Which I think is really important. So we have... This, you know, this first known act of glitter bombing starts in 2011. Minnesota activist Nick Espinoza shouted, feel the rainbow. And man, all of these like fucking awesome activists from Minnesota also. Um, So yeah, uh, Minnesota activist Nick Espinoza shouted, feel the rainbow and showered Newt Gingrich conservative taco uh. host and noted homophobe uh, with an entire this this was a detail that i only found in one article and it makes me giggle so much doused him with an entire cheese it box full of glitter during a book signing oh i love that um so this is kind of the first instance that we see of somebody just like showering somebody in glitter that's um, so good Espinoza said about his decision to do this, What I've tried to do with creative forms of protest, like glittering, is to capture people's imagination and tap into a cultural point of reference with a piece of political theater projected into the real world. By creating a moment of conflict, I shine a light onto the hypocrisy and bigotry of our current political discourse in a way that is as entertaining as it is dramatic. I think it's, you know, it is really good to grab that media attention, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there were, have been, of course, subsequent glitter bombings. Uh, After Espinoza's first, the tactic became pretty popular in the early 2010s, especially around the 2012 election. Uh, Some of the more notable glitter bomb recipients included uh, Tea Party candidate Michelle Bachman in 2012. Uh, Rick Santorum, who was glitter bombed no less than six times between December 2011 and February 2012. 
Mm-hmm. And then also had his last name uh, associated with really nasty um, sex acts. So oh, Dan Savage. Uh, yep. Mm. Uh, as much as I fucking hate Dan Savage, mm-hmm. uh, I thank him for uh, Santorum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitt Romney was glitter bombed twice before the Republic- Republican Party nomination for the 2012 election. Um, and this made me so happy. Uh, in 2011, a group of LGBTQ activists calling themselves the Glitterati, which is possibly the best name ever, um, set their sights on like entire organizations. They stormed the Bachman, uh, Michelle Bachman's husband, uh, conversion therapy clinic in Minnesota and threw glitter everywhere, shouting, you can't pray away the gay baby. I was born this way, which, mwah, beautiful. They also dropped bags of confetti from the Minnesota State Fair Skyride attraction into the uh, booths of conservative organizations at the State Fair. Just like, see ya, boom. Ooh, <laughs> just, I love just, that. Just <laughs> glitter from above. It's great. Oh my God. Um, an organization, Glitter Bombs for Choice, started mailing packages of glitter to anti-abortion websites. And of course, white supremacist Richard Spencer was glitter bombed by Antifa in 2017 in Washington, D.C. at a protest against the Syrian war. And punched. So, you know, still using it to this day. Very effective. Love to see a Nazi get punched and covered in glitter. That's always Um, okay with me. Yeah. And even like beyond glitter bombing itself, you know, glitter has been used in various other queer protest ways continually today. Like there was in 2017, right after the inauguration of Trump uh, in an act of protest, there was this huge queer dance party in front of Mike Pence's uh, temporary housing that was described by organizers as a glitter filled, rainbow filled extravaganza. Yeah. So there is also this thing called the glitter and ash movement, mainly popular in New York and Chicago. Yeah. you northerners are very interesting people. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's a it's a like coalition of churches that show support by queer parishioners by um, doing ceremonies where they mix ashes for Ash Wednesday with like purple glitter and apply it to queer parishioners. Um, and I just really love that kind okay, of that's pretty cool. mix mix that's of the cool. sacred and profane. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Um, one thing I learned recently is that there exists vegan glitter now. For all of our vegan queer friends, vegan glitter is a thing. And it made me realize, I don't actually know what glitter is made of. I think glitter, I mean, glitter is made of plastic, um, which, you know, is is tough, right? It's like, I, you know, we want to love glitter, but it's made of microplastics. Um, But these days, there's a lot of efforts to make it biodegradable. Yeah, that sounds like science, which I don't believe in. So never mind. Yeah. So go forth uh, (laughs) into your lives now with the knowledge of glitter bombing and, uh, you know. Glitter and be gay. Glitter and be gay. Yes. Perfect. Word of the week. Gay word of history. All right. Uh, So that was our word of the week. Uh, Back to our narrative. So we've moved out of Dade County in Florida. And inspired by all of these precedents of it spreading across the country in all of these different municipalities, in 1978, a conservative California state senator from Orange County named John Briggs escalated this campaign from repealing local ordinances to attempting to enact anti-gay legislation at the state level for the first time by introducing Proposition 6, which attempted to ban gays and lesbians and anyone who expressed support for queer people from teaching in schools. Yeah, the text of the initiative stated that any public school teacher, teacher's aide, administrator, 
or counselor could be fired, even with union contracts in place, if they were found to have engaged in, uh, this is the line of the, the initiative, public homosexual activity, not discreet and not practiced in private, whether or not such act at the time of its commission constituted a crime. Or public homosexual conduct, which is defined as the advocating, soliciting, imposing, encouraging, or promoting of private or public homosexual activity directed at or likely to come to the attention of school children and or other employees. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Um, And this was yet again backlash against local advancement in queer rights. Earlier that year, Harvey Milk had introduced San Francisco's first gay rights ordinance, the Human Rights Ordinance, as it was called, which the New York Times at the time deemed the most stringent and encompassing in the nation. We're going to talk a tiny little bit about Harvey Milk, but Harvey Milk is his whole, whole, whole own episode. But Briggs and and their campaign gathered over 500,000 signatures to put the repeal on the ballot. And this was, you know, much like in Dade County, it was several thousand, several hundred thousand more than were required. In his own words, John Briggs said, one third of San Francisco teachers are homosexual. I assume most of them are seducing young boys in toilets, which is a disgusting fucking quote. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Referring to gay teachers, he also said, most of them are in the closet, and frankly, that's where I think they should remain. Uh, Briggs specifically modeled his initiative after the Dade County repeal and success of this protecting children language. He uh, previously campaigned with Anita Bryant in Dade County, and he even went as far as naming his organization California Defend Our Children, or in some places you can see California Save Our Children. So literally just another branch of this same argument and same uh, organization. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, this was much more specific to a profession than the Dade County one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to ask the question, why were teachers targeted here? And that kind of brings us to the idea of queer labor, which was a term I had never really heard of until one or two years ago. And one reason that Briggs targeted teachers was because of this concept, queer labor, or also known as queer work, which does refer to careers or professions that gays and lesbians could take that cross traditional gender lines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because teaching was considered women's work, it was one of the few professional jobs where educated gay men could work without much conflict or fear of being outed. Uh, similarly, single lesbians could teach without too many questions related to their marital status or relationship status. Mm-hmm. And another reason why Briggs targeted teachers was so that they can use lies to connect gay people to child molesters and recruiting children to homosexuality. And we talked about this briefly back in our Labor Movement Coalitions episode. This idea of like queer work, you know, comes back to Alan Barabay. And we're going to see the a large amount of the major a large amount of the resistance to Briggs comes from teachers unions. A few months before the election, polls were showing that the Briggs Initiative had a ton of support um, and that it would most likely end up the same way that Dade County and all of these other places had. As late as August in 1978, 61% were in favor, 31% opposed, 8% were undecided, which is actually the exact same margin. I mean, I think there was like, you know, percentages that, you know, we leave out here. Those are, These are roundings, but pretty much the same percentages that the Dade County won by. Yeah, just the opposite. Yeah. Well, Except no, this, this is was, this is No, this but is, like this one like was like 
we voted against it. Well, no. So this is this sixty-one percent was in favor of oh, the yeah. Green's initiative. The yeah. polling, yes, yes. Yeah. This, these Sorry. are the polls. These are the See, polls. I just um, looking at numbers on the screen. I confused <laughs> myself. I'm like, no, we, we this, this turned out differently. <laughs> but but it ended up. But it actually yes. ended up being a similar margin. So by election day on November seventh, nineteen seventy-eight, due to a huge mobilization of grassroots organizing that we're going to talk about next, the initiative was defeated by over a million votes. Um, So you had 59% voting no and 41% voting yes. And even in Briggs' home county of Orange County, they they voted no, which is uh, like an absolutely conservative stronghold. Um, Yeah, even still to this day. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's terrible. I'm sorry, everybody who lives in Orange County. Um, So to celebrate, kind of on the flip side, you know, reverse of like what happened in in Dade County, Around 8,000 people ran out and celebrated on Castro Street in San Francisco, uh, even, you know, dancing along to the Gay Freedom Day marching band when the results were announced. And they then marched to the Prop 6 headquarters and celebrated in front there. (laughs) And uh, in L.A., you had around 3,000 people who gathered at the Beverly Hilton Hotel for a No on 6 rally. And this was even attended by L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley. So... In Florida, we get defeat. In California, we get celebration. So that's good. I mean, mm-hmm. you see that kind of learning the different tactics, learning, taking a loss and learning how to campaign against it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing we see is that and so kind of looking at how the LGBTQ response and how Proposition 6 was defeated, unlike what came before it, the Briggs Initiative really was a huge turning point. And it was the first campaign since the Dade County loss that actually ended up being defeated. But it wasn't without a lot of struggle and without a lot of organizing to make that happen. Yeah, much in the same way, you know, that we saw with organizations kind of capitalizing on Bryant, California queer activists utilized this extreme public bigotry of Briggs and the initiative to their advantage. Don Bradley, who was the manager of the No on Six media campaigns, said in an issue of the Bay Area Reporter, which is a gay newspaper in San Francisco, Briggs himself was an asset. If we had hired somebody from Central Casting to head an effort against us, they would have charged double for someone like Briggs, which I fucking love that quote. (laughs) So good. Uh, Some of the main actors in the fight against Briggs were Harvey Milk and Sally Gearhart, who's someone who uh, frequently kind of gets left out of the narrative. We'll do a whole episode on her. Um, She's a really fascinating figure. She was a professor. She was a science fiction writer. She was a lesbian feminist and separatist. And she and Harvey Milk publicly debated... John Briggs on TV, which is a huge turning point. You also had activists from Bay Area Gay Liberation, or BAGEL, uh, which is the best acronym, uh, including Tom Amiano, Hank Wilson, and Ron Lanza, and trade and labor unions, and within that, like, rank-and-file teachers who were actually appealing to these unions were major, major actors. And you even had, like, community groups that sprang up, like Bay Area Committee Against the Briggs Initiative, or BACABI, that were really credited with turning things around. Yeah, I mean, which for the record, BAGEL is just a better acronym than the DCCHR. Yeah, DCCHR. Sorry, Dade County. Like, it's just better. BAGEL is better. Um, West Coast, West Coast. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't even like bagels, but that's okay. <laughs> I eat what are called donuts, which are a better bagel. <laughs> so, uh, so, But one thing we see with the Briggs Initiative is that it actually greatly influenced attendance at the 1977-1978 uh, California Pride Marches. Uh, that summer, an estimated 250 to 375,000 people attended the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade. Bacabi organized a contingent that was the protest against bigots, and folks carried signs emblazoned with Anita Bryant and John Briggs alongside images of Hitler, Stalin, and other demagogues and human rights violators. Yeah, there's a really, really wonderful photo. I can't remember who the photographer is, but we'll link to it, but it's a really great image. Um, So yeah, so we kind of wanted to break down just a little bit of like what some of these individual actors did to contribute. So starting off with like Harvey Milk and Sally Gerhardt, on September 6th, 1978, Briggs and Harvey, who was the uh, first openly gay man elected to public office, if you are not familiar, uh, we still haven't done a full episode on him, but we've mentioned him in multiple multiple episodes. He was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and Sally Gerhardt debated Prop 6 on live public TV. And this was, you know, really something significant. This was one of the first times that you really saw um, what was basically seen as like media bias for (laughs) queer people. Um, On the program, John Briggs stated, I care about this country and I care about the family. And I really sincerely, honestly, and truly believe from the bottom of my heart that homosexuality is a real threat to the survival of this country. And Harvey Milk has some really choice quotes from this, but, you know, one of the things he really stressed, aside from, you know, we're, we're your brothers and sisters, we're, we're already in your community, this is, you know, this is human rights violations, he, he argued in the debate that a lot of this was a smokescreen for Briggs trying to gain support for a future run for governor. It's something that we see a lot from politicians that, you know, seem like they're kind of a little bit more on the moderate side, and then come election cycle, they swing one way really, really hard to one direction. So we have this rebuttal from Harvey Milk, where he says, you know, you're lying. You know, you're changing the statements around just like you shifted the money around in your campaigns. You talk about morality. And I question what is your real motive behind it? What is your real ambitions behind this? And Harvey Milk and others in the in the movement, you know, really, at this point, encouraged the gay community to come out of the closet to really publicly embrace, you know, being part of this community in order to garner support from straight allies around them to defeat the measure. That same language that NGTF was saying, that strategizing and tactics, you know, really was uh, applied that, you know, we're already part of your lives. Support us. Yeah. I mean, I think another area that you get a little bit of support from is in the kind of political world. The proposition gained opposition, so people were saying no on six, from both President Jimmy Carter and former California Governor Ronald Reagan, who, you know, for the record, still a piece of shit, but he did oppose this. And Reagan actually went on record saying, it has the potential of infringing on the basic rights of privacy and even constitutional rights. Reagan added, whatever it is, Homosexuality is not a disease like the measles. Prevailing scientific opinion is that an individual's sexuality is determined at a very early age and that a child's teachers do not really influence this. God, what a quote to hear in 2022. From Reagan. It's like, yeah, okay. The, well, the mean, whatever, it, whatever it is, homosexuality is not a disease like the me- measles. Meanwhile, you know, yeah, fucking I 10 mean, years later. Yeah, I mean... 
I mean, the whole, you know, it's cool that Jimmy Carter came out against it and Gerald Ford, but for the whole Reagan thing, this was really risky because in just two years, and he ran for president in 1976, didn't get the nomination. In 1980, he would actually win the presidential race mm-hmm. based largely on Falwell's moral majority support and these other conservative evangelical groups. So they pushed him into the White House in 1980 and 84, and then he showed who he really was mm-hmm. by completely disregarding the gay community during the AIDS epidemic, by downplaying it, by saying people were being punished for their lifestyles. So he completely did a 180 here, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is just... He showed who he really was. It just seems very opportunistic. And I mean, you know, we will say that, like, it very well may have been the fact that Reagan being governor was showing opposition to this that was, you know, part of the tipping point in overturning this. Um, uh, Briggs specifically, publicly, we really wanted to bring up this one person. Um, He specifically publicly attacked a gay second grade teacher named Larry Berner, who uh, was uh, from Healdsburg, California, which is an area outside of San Francisco Bay Area. During a press conference, he essentially you know, referred to to Burner saying, if you'd put a second grade child with a homosexual, you're off your gourd. We don't let necrophiliacs be morticians. Again, false equivalencies. Um, and gross. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, much like our heroes in in uh, Tom Higgins and Nick Espinoza, you know, Larry Burner was out in his private life, but not at work. And he actually came out at his elementary school job to join the campaign to fight the initiative and became one of the most outspoken campaigners. We had this quote that I really wanted to include. He said, I've already been hit once by guilt fear, and ignorance, which filled me with self-hate and controlled my social and personal behavior for 30 years. I'm determined to stand and fight, determined to live and work as a member of the society with rights equal to those of everybody else. So I thought, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think we have to remember these are individuals that this would affect. Mm-hmm. Individual teachers that are just trying to live their lives. These, this initiative would have affected real lives and real jobs, yeah. you know, so... Uh, one thing that we want to highlight is trade unions and labor and their involvement here. Uh, trade unions were actually some of the biggest actors against the initiative. LGBTQ teachers encouraged and convinced the American Federation of Teachers, uh, the AFT, which was the second largest teachers union in the country, uh, in California to oppose it. The LA and San Francisco Bay Area were also very significant in this organizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, some of the really significant coalitions were gay teachers and school workers, GTSW, uh, who were originally called the Gay Teachers Coalition. Um, and then forming out of GTSW, you have the lesbian school workers, specifically uh, in late 1977. And many of uh, LSW's leadership, as we saw, you know, with many labor unions, were Jewish. And they also specifically fought uh, alongside Prop 6. They fought against Proposition 6. Seven, which would have extended prison terms for uh, murder felonies and expanded the death penalty. You know, they, they fought against this in solidarity with organizers of color who were saying like Prop 6 and Prop 7 go hand in hand and they are going to disenfranchise poor people and queer people and brown and black people. Um, and Proposition 7 was another Briggs and, led yeah, exactly. effort as well. Like this exactly. was, Briggs wasn't just hating one group. Briggs yeah. hated a lot of groups. So it was really significant that, you know, these trade unions specifically collaborated with other caucuses and labor unions and worked on specifically outreaching to other traditionally marginalized communities, much like we saw in the Coors boycott. This is this is yet another instance 
incidents where you have a really tight collaboration between labor and queer movements fighting for kind of more radical liberation. So some of the uh, labor effort was focused on education and fundraising. For example, the Gay Teachers Coalition newsletter in late 77 and early 78 really challenged and countered the Christian rights claims of queer people being dangerous to children. Uh, So there's this one quote from the newsletter that said, We have been accused of child molesting, recruitment, and trying to influence children's sexuality. In fact, statistics, observation, and common sense prove that sexuality is not determined by the sexual orientation of the teacher or school worker. In addition, studies show that most sex crimes are committed by so-called normal straight men. And this was something that was, you know, reiterated uh, multiple times with multiple different actors. I mean, you had uh, like Gay Activist Alliance were were saying these same things, um, you know, really trying to like steer that moral panic over like child pornography and child molestation to, okay, but look at the, <laughs> look at the actual statistics. And, you know, that just continually reminds me of like all the bullshit arguments of, you know, well, well but if we l- let trans people use the bathroom, then then men pretending to be women will attack women and children in bathrooms. And I'm like, show me. Show me one time. Show me one time ever when a trans woman has pretended to be a woman to attack children in a bathroom. Meanwhile, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> I'm just lost in your Karen voice there that you just did. I'm just trying not to bust laughing for that. Like, I'm like, oh, Karen. I'm just like, meanwhile, um, how love, many how I'm many senators voice. have been ar- arrested for lewd behavior in public bathrooms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I really like the story of, um, to, to kind of just like wrap things up a little bit here, um, I I wanted to put in at the California Federation of Teachers convention, May 1978, was really significant because they actually had um, McClelland, I think it's the textbook publisher, held the first ever workshop on homosexuality in education. Uh, It was called, Is Homosexuality Catching? The Gay Teacher, Reality versus Myth. And Gay Teachers of LA members actually persuaded 250 of California Teachers Union delegates to wear black armbands with pink Stop Briggs triangles during the convention, and they passed out flyers, and this was, like, really, really significant mobilizing, which was really neat. And so, you know, Briggs was overturned by over a million votes, and we have very uh, targeted, mobilized grassroots organizing by queer people in, uh, you know, major metropolitan cities throughout California, but also, you know, in many other places like LA and, you know, San Francisco were major locuses, but there's also um, a lot of local organizing in Sonoma and San Bernardino. And there's a lot of really great resources out there that you can see kind of, you know, the the full extent of what people were organizing with. Yeah, I mean, if anything, this goes to show you that the gay community, the queer community cannot do it alone. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough of us. We need the support of allies, of other groups. And we need these other groups to understand that if they're coming for us, you will be next if they haven't come for you already. Mm -hmm. So it's just the idea of that coalition building is so important. Yeah. So main takeaways, kind of our our conclusions and final thoughts before we go into our, uh, we do have pop culture tie-ins because, you know, it's it's a big, big cultural uh, milestone. (laughs) Um, 
you know, but we just kind of wanted to wrap some things up in the narrative and kind of talk about where we are today and some follow up on some of these uh, these initiatives. Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, Anita Bryant's National Crusade Against Gay Rights really had the opposite effect than she intended. Uh, Many scholars and writers have asserted that many LGBTQ people in the 1970s and the early 70s had really become kind of complacent and avoided a lot of the political activities involved. And her involvement really did kind of galvanize many people to either get involved, get engaged, or re-engage with queer politics Mm-hmm. And so it was definitely that opposite effect. Yeah. And radically shifted the like the, the ways that people were organizing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and looking at Anita Bryant and Dade County and the Briggs Initiative, you know, one of the reasons why we really wanted to do this episode now is, as we said in the top, we're seeing considerable parallels between the 1970s and what's happening in state legislatures now in 2022. The attack against LGBTQ students in schools uh, uses the exact same parental rights language that was common with Save Our Children. And it all goes back to anti-busing and to the same racist, homophobic, transphobic dog whistles that we just continue to see over and over and over. And we've been reiterating it throughout this entire episode, but if you want to hear us get really down and dirty about it and talk uh, specifically about, you know, the the ordinances and the, you know, the bills that have been introduced this year and kind of have a larger uh, <laughs> vent session, if you will, please go on over and listen to the episode that we did on Southern Query. And in that one, you also get to uh, listen to Aubrey's lovely co-host, India Bastian, and we all get together and talk about the, you know, state of the world. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah. All that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we have a good time. It's like we, we're, we're venting, but we also have a great time. Yeah. Uh, we do want to point out that the original gay rights ordinance in Dade County, I'm sorry, Miami-Dade County. Yes. Miami-Dade County now. Miami-Dade County wasn't reinstated until 1998, and it was an extremely close vote of 7 to 6. In 2002, opponents tried again to introduce an initiative to repeal the 1998 ordinance, but that was voted down by 60 56% of the people, so mm-hmm. they just had enough of all this. And I think there was, like, in 2004, there was a vote to repeal um, Florida's ban on gay parental adoption, um, but the, the courts voted to uphold it, and it wasn't uh, then struck down until 2008, I think. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, John Briggs, that asshole, uh, retired from the California Assembly in 1981. He did some more trying to run for various positions and failed because he basically became a laughing stock. He died in 2020. Get wrecked. Whatever. Um. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anita Bryant is known to have had multiple bankruptcies and home foreclosures. Places like Arkansas, throughout the South. Imagine consequences. Right? You know? And of course, we mentioned the uh, she's on her second marriage and they're still married since 1980. And I, which I didn't know this going into this. Anita Bryant is still alive. Yeah, she's in her, like, ripe old 80s. I assumed she wasn't. Yeah, and and you actually, you found out uh, something, you know, even more surprising than, um, oh, well, she's, you know, she's alive. You also found something more surprising and upsetting while we were researching this, right? Yeah, her last known address is my hometown of Edmond, Oklahoma. 
And they've given her awards, and she's been recognized by the Oklahoma governor. And the actual address is a mile from my mother's house. No! Yes, I was looking at it on Google Maps. I'm like, oh my god, that's a mile from my mom's house. I've driven by that house. I mean... And this is why I left Edmond. <laughs> Although I, have, I love all my friends there, you know what? this is why I left. You know... Who mm. hasn't received a glitter bomb, probably? Yeah, except as I always tell my students, if you're going to do crime, don't talk about it on the ra- on the radio or don't record it. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. No one listened to this episode. Yeah, um, if you're going to do yeah. crime, don't have records of it. So No, no one, one tell anybody. Everyone leave are, her alone. She's basically retired and she's got no money and she's already a laughing stock and no one takes her seriously. Just leave her alone and let the consequences of her poor life choices be what they are. But in the most, one of the most beautiful cases of schadenfreude and, you know, dramatic irony, Anita Bryant's granddaughter, Sarah Green, in 2021 came out as bisexual and uh, stated that she is marrying a woman. And there were actually a few articles kind of on her struggle with her grandmother and, you know, whether she was going to invite her to the ceremony. And it does not seem like, you know, from those quotes, does not seem like Anita Bryant has changed anything. Um, and she's, no. you know, I feel really, really fucking bad for Sarah Green. You know, it's like, that's your grandma. Well, um, no, and Sarah Green's parents, like Anita yeah. Bryant's children, which do seem pretty pro-LGBTQ. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's there's a, a part where you're like, well, you know, it was the times, but, you know, she doesn't seem to be changing her tune anytime soon. But this is what the DCCHR and Harvey Milk were saying when we talk about, we are your children, we're your sons and daughters. This is directly so in Anita Bryant's yeah, family. Like shit. it's literally what they were saying in the arguments against it. Yeah, like against I hate the, uh, repealing the Dade initi- uh, the Dade County Ordinance. I hate to say yeah. that, like you know, somebody being like queer is somebody's karma because you know that makes it like a negative thing. But a you know, but it, yeah. but it but it feels like it feels like a you know kind of divine coincidence in some ways. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and so we mentioned, like, Anita Bryant is no longer in the public eye. She really hasn't been public since 1980 or so. I mean, some on the whole gospel Christian circuit, but really for mainstream America, we've all kind of moved on. Uh, Save Our Children basically folded around the time with the divorce, and it was kind of outpaced by more prominent organizations like Phyllis Schlafly's The Eagle Forum, Moral Majority with Jerry Falwell, The Rise of Pat Robertson, and people like Tim LaHaye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even uh, Save Our Children actually ended up needing to change their name legally to, I think they changed it to Protect Our Children, Protect America's Children or something, uh, because of multiple uh, lawsuits from uh, Save the Children. Uh, yes, which, which is, is the different organization. Which is a it's different organization. <laughs> and I don't know if they're good or not. I just know they're a different organization. Well, but it's so. also a different organization than what QAnon are doing with Save the Children. Uh, yes, they're not doing anything helpful there. No, yeah. no they, it so. is an actual legitimate organization for, for yes. like children's, you know, like, like international like, like, children, inter- international children, um, you know, advocacy around the world. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Pop culture tie-in. Yes. Uh, A whole bunch of people have made multiple references. We talked about, like, there's SNL skits. There are, uh, there's a Carol Burnett sketch that we'll try to link to. But there's, you know, some others we wanted to point out here. Um, So for just, like, for one of them, you know, country musician David Allen Coe included a song called Fuck Anita Bryant on his album Nothing Sacred in 1978. (laughs) Hey, fuck Anita Bryant. Who the hell did 
Telling all them faggots that they can't be free Throw that bitch in prison, maybe then she'll see Just how much them goddamn homosexuals mean to me Jimmy Buffett, guest of the whole Margaritaville fame, sings in Manana. Yeah, this one I really love. Um, punk band Dead Kennedys, which has been one of my favorites for many years, uh, references Bryant and others, like Aubrey was just mentioning, you know, who are big figures in the moral majority in their song, Moral Majority. And the lyrics are, you're planning for a war with or without Iran, building a police state with the Ku Klux Klan, pissed at your neighbor, don't bother to nag, pick up the phone and turn in a fag, blow it out your ass, Terry Dolan, blow it out your ass, Phyllis Shafley, ram it up your cunt, Anita, because God must be dead if you're alive. God must be dead if you're alive. Oh, wow. So, uh, strong feelings. From I mean, Dead Kennedys. I feel like the next few references we have are pretty tame in comparison to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, if anyone's familiar with the Tales of the City stories uh, from California writer Armistad Maupin, one of his characters actually came out to his parents, and the parents just happened to be Florida orange growers. Which, what a coincidence, because he wrote that around 1978 or so. He never admitted it was a dig at Anita Bryant, but everyone basically thinks it is. Well, and speaking of, you know, kind of like transparent references um, that everybody kind of knew, you know, slipped underneath there. Um, this was one that I was really surprised to see. The Howard the Duck comic series has a nemesis named the Supreme Sufi, or uh, Sinister Sufi, and that's S-O-O-F-I who is a, a woman from Miami, Florida, who leads an organization called S-O-O-F-I, Save Our Offspring from Indecency. Hmm. hmm. So that's a whole long-running thing. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Uh, you also, you know, you see several other references, the Golden Girls, the Airplane movie, Will and Grace. Um, she is just like, you know, like a punchline. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, w- we also wanted to mention... Um, Anita Bryant, you know, appears as an antagonist uh, in actual, like, archival footage in the 2008 film Milk, starring Sean Penn. So you can, you know, check that out and kind of have have that context as to what was going on. Still haven't seen it. It's a good one. It's a good one. I don't I, I don't like to watch movies about real people. Nothing, it's not, nothing against the movie. I just don't like movies <laughs> about real people. <laughs> so we've reached the part in the episode where we usually do How Gay Were They? Where we rate are people that we are talking about on a scale uh, of, you know, we rate their queerness and their gayness. Um, And we really kind of, you know, didn't really know what to do about this one because I don't want to uh, ascribe the good gay, you know, ratings to any of these people. I would say maybe let's do, um, you know, we could do a a how anti-gay were they or yeah, let's uh, do the reverse yeah you know? let's let's okay so let's say uh aubrey how hateful how uh, bigoted were they yeah <laughs> how you know how anti-gay were all these fuckwads and then on the flip side uh it, uh how how gay were you know some of our wonderful uh activists that fought all of this i think for the activists total easy you know i think i would give the activists at the local level about 12 not glitter bombs but 
glitter praise nice. all over themselves, like glitter everywhere that they want it to be. A glitter uh, shower. Glitter shower, glitter makeup, glitter eyeshadow, glitter everywhere that they want it to be. For Anita Bryant and Jerry Falwell and all those fuckers, I'd give them 1,959 pies in the face because that was the year she lost Miss America. <laughs> <laughs> so 1959 pies in the face to Anita Bryant. Oh my god, that's so good. How am I gonna how am I gonna follow that See, up? Five, five episodes in, I'm finally getting the hang of it. <laughs> the shade. Oh, that's so good. Shit. Oh man. Okay. Um, so for for our wonderful activists, you know, especially like Tom Higgins for giving us uh the majesty of pieing Anita Bryant in the face. I will give mm, 13 out of 10 rainbow unicorn stickers. How about that? Just one of the gayest, <laughs> gayest, gayest things that I can think of in 2022. <laughs> Wonderful uh, gay unicorns to um, lift them up into the sky away from all of these terrible people. And I would say into the future <laughs> where things are better. But... <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a reason why we're doing this episode now. Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's ebbs and flows. <laughs> yeah, uh, for Anita Bryant, for uh, John Briggs, for everybody, I will do negative sixty nine million points and two thousand twenty two pies to the face. How about that? Ooh, uh, I like there that. There we go. Yes. Um, <laughs> somebody, I don't know. Some somebody needs to make some like. Uh, what's it called? Like the, the Fine Brothers remixes of like news footage. Somebody needs to make like a Fine Brothers style song that is the video of Anita Bryant getting pied in the face. Combined with like all of the different like glitter bombings. That'd be really fun. I love that. Oh, I love that. Yes. I love that. So yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Aubrey, for coming on here and doing this episode with me. Well, thank you for coming on my show. Yes. Uh, thank you for no. suggesting this as a topic. Aubrey is, you know, the person who came to me and was like, hey, a lot of shit's going on right now. Maybe we should talk about this. Any excuse to talk to you, really. Yeah. You know, first, I'm like, Same. I want to talk to Lee. <laughs> what can I talk to them about? And then the topic comes second. Yes. First, I just yeah, want to hang we, out with it's, you. It's almost as if we've become friends over the last couple of years. Wow. Um, I know, weird, right? <laughs> Uh, well, in case people um, have not heard your lovely voice on this podcast or your podcast before, um, can you tell listeners who may be new to you where they can find you on the internet and more of your work? Sure. I am Aubrey Calvin. I am a uh, writer and podcaster and teacher. Uh, and when I'm not talking about queer life in the South, I'm usually writing one thing or another about queer culture and families. You can find me obsessing over Star Trek and Doctor Who on Twitter at Aubrey Calvin and that's A-U-B-R-E-E. -E. And then you can read some of my writing in Gay Parent Magazine, where I have a regular column. Yay! And Lee, what do you do? Where are you at? On the interwebs. On the interwebs. Uh, I am Lee. If you don't know, I have a last name. And uh, maybe I should start actually doing that in this episode. Uh, so I'm your host, Lee Pfeffer. I don't have a very radio-y name. 
When I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV and also ranting uh, about things on Twitter at a paradox in flux and usually crying about Xena episodes on my couch. We are rushing to get this episode out before I go away for my annual Xena summer camp, which I'm really excited about. Um, Yay! Yeah. Uh, and to see connections between Anita Bryant and the current state of anti-LGBTQ legislation, once you hang up on this episode, you know, make sure you listen to the second part of our conversation on the Southern Queries feed, or alternatively on this feed if we end up doing a feed drop. We still haven't quite figured that out, so we haven't figured that out you'll yet. know you'll, as soon as you listen to there, this episode. You know. All right. Uh, History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter and Instagram now at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can join our newly revamped Patreon. As a patron, you can get access to our new super secret Discord server, which has been really fun. I've had a really wonderful time just getting some like direct kind of hangout time with listeners. We are also doing Sappho's Salon mini-sodes, where we'll treat you to love letters and poems from queer historical faves. We just put a really fun one out uh, last month. Pop culture tie-in live watches that we have planned, and future queer history trivia nights. We've got exclusive merch and even more. I'm really proud of uh, this kind of new phase of Patreon. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website or patreon.com slash historyisgay and join the ranks of our patron community, along with the amazing Rene Delu, Kirsty McKeown, Ronaldo Diaz, and wow, uh, this name sounds so familiar. Uh, Aubrey Kelvin, thank you so much for becoming a patron of History is Gay podcast. Maybe we'll have you on the show sometime as a special patron gift. <laughs> uh, thank you so much uh, for all of your support. Couldn't do this without you. Y'all make this possible. You make it so that we can get cool JSTOR articles and buy books and do things like pay our wonderful friends to uh, make cool designs that we can then send proceeds to organizations that are fighting homophobic legislation. So again, you can buy awesome merch at our new History is Gay tea public store. You can just click on shop at our website and it'll take you right there. And lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community that is getting larger and larger and more wonderful by the day. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and and stay stay curious. curious.